Reducing Crime is a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Dr Justin Nix is a distinguished associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Nebraska Omaha and this year's outstanding young experimental criminologist. We chat about his research on procedural justice, police legitimacy and the use of deadly force. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe and welcome to Reducing Crime. Justin Nix is a rising star in policing research and experimental criminology. He's a distinguished associate professor at the University of Nebraska-Omaha, and his research on procedural justice, police legitimacy, and officer-involved shootings has received a great deal of attention. Justin has published over 60 peer-reviewed academic articles and other publications in these areas. One study in the Journal of Experimental Criminology on causal effects of civilian demeanour on police officers' recognitions and emotions is particularly noteworthy, and we discuss it at the start of this episode. He's a National Institute of Justice Leeds academic, was the recipient of the American Society of Criminology's Division of Policing Early Career Award last year, and is this year's Outstanding Young Experimental Criminologist, awarded by the Division of Experimental Criminology. He has his undergraduate, master's and a PhD in criminology and criminal justice from the University of South Carolina, where he succeeded despite being mentored by Jeff Alpert. Now, don't worry, Jeff will never listen to this. We caught up after a couple of drinks at the American Society of Criminology conference in Chicago in November, but at least we chatted before the night completely deteriorated into what I can only vaguely remember involved midnight yoga in the bar. <sighs> Look, it's all a little fuzzy, to be honest. Kind of surreal too. I mean, I don't feel like I belong in with the the cast you've put together so far, but be an imposter. Oh, please speaks the guy who is the <laughs> young experimental researcher of the year for the division of experimental criminology. That was quite a surprise. Yeah, my colleagues. You know, all credit to them, Justin Pickin and actually Renee Mitchell, who you've uh, had on the podcast before, I believe. Oh, she lurks around every now and again. <laughs> she crops up here and there. Yeah, yeah. We wrote that paper on compliance, non-compliance, and what we call the in-between experimental survey with the with an agency in the southwest and and so we kind of revisited some of the classics on demeanor and police discretion and found that as probably no surprise to you when people are assholes police are more frustrated and angry that changes their emotions and their cognitions and so that we argue is what explains some of the differences in their behaviors right and it's something that seems lost on so many people one of my formative experiences as a young cop in the east end of london somebody came in with an arrest the custody sergeant kind of said, you know, what's the charge? And he explained. This guy basically talked himself into arrest. Right. Because the officer had the discretion to go either way. It's a perfectly legitimate, legal, lawful arrest. Mm -hmm. The idea of using discretion on somebody who was just so venomously obnoxious. You know, my colleague had tried to give him every opportunity, wind his neck in. It's that lack of understanding of human nature, right? I think so. I mean, if I treat you like an asshole, you're going to get annoyed and probably treat me like an asshole. I mean, it's the so-called golden rule, right? Treat others the way you would like to be treated. I've heard it said, treat others the way you treat your family, and I do question that, but... <laughs> right, yeah, you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family, right? <laughs> That's right. It's a consistent finding throughout the literature that demeanor has a significant effect on how officers behave, and that really should come as no surprise. 
I don't know who was the first to talk about it, whether it was Sykes or Alpert or... Alpert would be the first because he's the oldest. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope he's listening to that too. Yeah, I got a few jabs in last night at the panel when I was, I was proud of that. But, you know, they talk about the authority maintenance ritual and the, the back and forth that goes on during these transactional encounters. And it's all really fascinating to me. I think too often we get obsessed with that final frame with deadly force incidents. There are a lot of things that happen leading up to that often. Yep. But often is the case, these are prolonged encounters where there's a back and forth. There's an exchange of deference or, you know, a lack of deference. And, and both parties are attuned to that, as you know. You know, there'll be a lot of cops listening and go, well, no shit. But I think it's also important that we demonstrate some quantitative evidence of this and what cops know anecdotally. But also I think it's important that this just gets stated because there's a whole bunch of people who are very happy to comment on policing, who don't know shit about it. They never actually go on ride-alongs or experience the system, but they sit often in ivory towers or sometimes as politicians and they prognosticate from afar. So I think there's a lot to be said for putting some real numbers and evidence behind what is often just known anecdotally. Yeah, like you said, it's easy to say, oh, well, of course, I knew that already. Did you though? I mean, think about how often you've been surprised. Yeah. It does happen. And so I think it is important to, like you said, have some actual evidence. Hindsight bias. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also reassuring for scholars. You can read a qualitative piece of research that speaks to a few cops that might say that, but now you're actually seeing it's a much wider, broader issue. That's right. And because it was experimentally designed, we know that it's the changes in those vignettes that we induced that caused the the changes in the reported emotions. Explain how you did the research. Yes, we got an agency in the Southwest to agree to invite their patrol officers to take a survey where we had embedded three different vignettes about routine police citizen encounters, uh, one involving a littering offense, one involving a traffic violation, one involving a suspected carjacker. So what I love about this is the first one's littering. Nobody in Philadelphia has ever been stopped by a cop for littering any time in living Fair. memory. I mean, that, they don't call it Philadelphia for nothing. <laughs> I'm not really good to ambassadors. Yeah, I love Philly. Honestly, I do. It's been nothing but good to me. But Fair enough. I guess we were going for very minor infractions where there's a wide degree of discretion, but where there is a clear violation of either a lawful order or some type of offense mm-hmm. where, where an officer would be justified in issuing a citation or perhaps even arresting. And we randomized within the vignettes whether the person was respectful and deferential, whether the person was non-compliant but still sort of neutral in terms of their demeanor, or whether the person was an outright asshole. Yeah. And the assholes invoked the most emotional and cognitive responses in officers. We just asked them, how fearful would you be in this situation? Or how frustrated would you feel? How angry would you feel? You know, unsurprisingly, I think the respectful, deferential person almost never right. <laughs> raised any red flags, right? The folks who were non-compliant, they were in between, as we call it. They weren't being a-holes, but they were still not following orders. Yep. And then the, the people who were downright rude and nasty and swearing, hostile yeah, toward the officer, yeah. Officers perceive that as a danger signifier, right? If this person is going to cuss at me when I'm giving them a lawful order, what else might they do, right? A lot of their experience will tell them this is a precursor to them kicking off physically. And you know what's funny is I pilot tested this with a separate agency and we had built into the vignette, you know, though it doesn't appear the person will be resistant or combative. He's cussing, he's, you know, getting emotionally charged, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. One of the officers actually called me up and he said, you know, you say that He's not going to be combative or resistant, but then you go on to describe literally what a combative and resistant suspect would do. This almost seems incompatible with each other. That's a fantastic reason to do pilot studies. Mm -hmm. That is fantastic. Absolutely. Were you administering these vignettes? Because I I don't remember all the details of the paper. Jerry, you didn't read the paper? I never read anything these days. I don't have that level of attention span. (laughs) I'm just happy to get up in the morning and remember what order my socks and shoes go on. (laughs) 
Were you administering these to the cops electronically? Yeah, this was virtually. We did it through, I believe, SurveyMonkey, so it was all online. And it's nice because that handles the randomization for you. It resulted in a lower response rate, you know, somewhere in the 30% range, so not, not too bad. I do remember some details of the paper. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. The bar's open. Cut me a break. <laughs> How did you get into doing all this kind of work? You don't have a policing background. I don't. I have an older brother. He's 11 years older than me. He was a cop. Me too. My brother's 12 years older than me. I, I was also an accident. <laughs> I hope mom's not listening, but uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Nix. <laughs> he was a cop for 10, 11 years, and I had a lot of family members who worked in law enforcement. And so when I went to the University of South Carolina for my undergraduate degree, that was always the plan, was to work in federal law enforcement. This was around the time that the Great Recession took hold. Right. And I remember we couldn't even have a career fair that year because nobody was hiring. It was a mess. It was bad. I yeah. don't think people remember how bad it was. One of my professors said, I think you'd be great for a graduate degree. You know, I started on the master's track, worked with folks like Alpert, Jeff Rojek, and you know, they put me on to research and that's where I realized this is a much better path for me. So I just became fascinated with reading the old classic ethnographies and more recent research being done and just wanted to be a part of that. And I'm, I just consider myself very fortunate. The research that you did on that paper is, is almost like a sort of technological update of Van Manen's The Asshole. That's exactly what we were going for is, you know, we noticed that a lot of that work, good as those studies are, right, there's still methodological holes there, still, I think, open questions as far as what mechanisms are at work. And that's kind of what we were after with the experiment. You work with Jeff Alpert and Carl and some of those guys, just going back and revisiting some of the sort of core assumptions, some of the work that you've been doing on disparities of police use of force and stuff like that. It's starting to undermine some of the almost like the accepted truisms mm -hmm. uh, because you're looking at it very rigorously when you're coming up with data and findings that doesn't necessarily go along with what people think you're getting some pushback? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, thank you. That was the end of that question. Right, brevity, right? No, it's gotten pushback from, I think, both sides of the political aisle. At times I think, well, maybe that's a good sign that I'm not pandering to one side or the other, right? I am truly trying to just follow the data and the evidence. But yeah, I mean, it was actually interesting a couple of weeks ago, I had two separate Twitter threads getting some attention from very different users of Twitter, right? I had the one paper on elevated turnover post-Floyd. There was getting a lot of likes and retweets from police practitioners and uh, evidence-based policing folks. And then I had the, the thread on racial disparities in police shootings where the population was the benchmark and I got plenty of pushback on that, but also, you know, shares and retweets from folks who would describe themselves, I believe, as abolitionists or certainly proponents of defunding the police or reforming the police. But it was funny because those two threads were not talking to each other at all. But you've done work in the past looking at the importance of the denominator. That's what right. is the underlying population, the populations that police are actually interacting with? Tell me a little bit about that. In that paper, we refer to the iceberg phenomenon. What we see in the police data is sort of the, the iceberg that's above the surface of the water, right? But there are classic pictures of the, the huge chunk of ice that lurks beneath unseen, and that's the denominator. The perfect denominator in police research when we're looking at, for example, use of force would be everyone who police observed and either stopped or did not stop. And we don't track who they don't stop. So the best you can do is to go back to the entire population. And we know that's loaded with flaws and strong assumptions. My thinking has changed on this. I think, you know, using arrests, for example, introduces biases into your model where you've, you've now blocked out any bias that might have operated before the decision to arrest. I mean, I think any denominator we choose, you know, it's not perfect. Right. The best we can do at this point to just be transparent, just say, here's the denominator I used, here are the assumptions, and here's what it is, you know? And I think you use multiple benchmarks and you show, here's what the data would look like. People still 
don't understand all the problems that are inherent with including a city's population. Yeah. Because due to racial bias in everything from healthcare to education to redlining of properties and loans 40 years ago, decades of unequal access to opportunities and all the benefits of society has really set the, the black and the African-American community, to some degree the Hispanic community, back a long way. The corollary of that is they end up being high crime places. So we send the cops to the places where the crime is because we hope they're going to have an effect on it. Policing happens where the police are. That's right. And so the denominator of a whole city's population is unrealistic because we're essentially focusing the police in black and Hispanic communities. Every time I see people using the population of an entire city as the denominator, are they ignorant of this fact? Or are they deliberately doing it because they know it's going to portray policing in an you know, unrealistically bad light? And I think there's probably some of all of that to go around. Not that I'm completely defending some policing. There's clearly some problems with policing. We should always be reforming and changing and improving. Right. It's funny. I got asked to uh, respond to an article and I was trying to think through, like, what's a good metaphor for this denominator problem? What other things do we try to study where it's important to know who's exposed to this risk, right? We should all be attuned to that right now with the COVID pandemic going on, right? Who's been exposed to the risk of contracting the virus? Some parts of the country don't think it's a real thing. This is true, right? What I settled on was like, we're estimating the risk of maternal mortality. It's not all women, it's women who were giving birth. Mm -hmm. If you want to estimate the risk of who gets bitten by sharks, we need to know who's going into the water. We're not counting everybody who just sits up on the beach, people who can't swim or opt not to swim. I've heard it's a big problem in Kansas. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, there's just no easy answers here. But as of now, you know, the best we can do is to just be transparent and acknowledge the problems and all of the assumptions that we make. So that work on the population denominator stuff was getting liked by people on the, the left. Right. And then the people on the right end of the spectrum were very positive about your paper on officer turnover. Yeah, they were two very different universes of people who were not interacting, you know, they were, they were liking their separate threads. Right. So with the turnover paper, you know, PERF has been sounding the alarms about this for years now. And it, again, this goes back to the Great Recession where uh, agencies went through hiring freezes and, you know, they weren't able to get back up to their full capacity uh, after the recession receded. Unless they're really small departments, I don't think I know any department that's fully staffed right now. Right. And ha they haven't been for years. Right. So it's not a new problem. But this was a conversation post-Ferguson, oh, you know, good cops are going to quit because they're tired of being beaten down in the media and so forth. And it happened again after the George Floyd murder in, in May of 2020. And, you know, we saw anecdotal accounts in Seattle, New York, Chicago. I'm sure there were stories in Philly about, you know, a spike in resignations or retirement. Everything's fine in Philly. Right. I, I can't, no problem. What I mentioned earlier about Philadelphia, I now have to redeem that by just bigging up Philadelphia every time it comes up in conversation. Okay, I'll take your word for it. So same kind of thing, right? A lot of talking, not a lot of data, not a lot of evidence to back it, or at least not convincing data, right? And so we had a unique opportunity with an agency out west that had monthly data on retirements, resignations, and involuntary separations. And explain what that is. I mean, I've had a couple of those in my romantic life, but uh, how does that work in policing terms? Well, there's some type of uh, egregious misconduct, right? I've had that in my romantic life too. <laughs> So what is this podcast about again? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, no, this is you know where the agency basically says uh, you're terminated, right? Am I right in assuming that that's that's where the analogy stops? Obviously, there's you know <laughs> can't 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 get into where the bodies are buried. And those are quite rare, but those are actually slowly ticking up as well. But I mean, the main finding from that paper was that, and we saw a 280 percent spike in resignations, but not retirements or involuntary separations beginning exactly in June, right? Right after the Floyd protests. And this was a city where there were sustained protests. The Floyd incident, as well as a local shooting that had occurred. There was body-worn camera footage. 
local elected officials came out admonishing what they said they saw and the investigation was still pending. Police leadership, they, they begged elected officials to wait for the investigation and sure enough, surveillance footage turns up and it shows that the suspect pointed a gun at officers before they shot. So a legally justified shooting, but it was too late at that point. And there were very serious protests that turned violent. You know, so it was a, a pretty ugly scene out there for at least 90 days. You know, in any event, a huge spike in resignations. We predicted that in 2021, it, you know, resignations would continue to be elevated. And um, at least through the first couple of months of this year, our, our forecast was pretty spot on. A huge spike in resignations is concerning for public safety. I know there's all this talk right now about how police don't matter. This is ridiculous. I mean, experts debate the size of the effect, but you can't just cut your police department in, in terms of their sworn capacity by 30-40% and expect there not to be some type of immediate spike in, yeah. in violence and, and crime in the community. That, that, that's a ridiculous assumption. What's also interesting is that people are putting value judgments on why people are retiring and why they're leaving policing. That's just opinion. They're, that's just guesswork. Because I know some officers who are retiring, and they're great officers, but they're not leaving out of some snippiness. They're not leaving as a kind of fuck you to the community. They're leaving because they're eligible for retirement, and they're just looking at it's essentially a hostile work environment that's out there. They don't have the community support. They don't have the support from politicians. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they're concerned, and I'm not talking about Philadelphia here, but in some cases, they're concerned that the police leadership are unable to have their back as well. That's right. And in, in the same way, I understand why recruitment is down too, because if that's the general perception, who would join policing at a time like this? Just people signing on the dotted line right now, I admire them to no end. And kudos to them. I mean, we need good people to enter this very important profession. I agree. I've heard the same sort of speculation about, well, they're just, you know, throwing a tantrum. And there may be a couple of cases of that because there's, sure there's there assholes and everything, right? I'm sure there are, right? Is, you know, the, the strength of policing is police are drawn from the community. That's right. It's a microcosm. The downside is that police are drawn from the community. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So, yeah, there's probably a few people who are kicking and screaming who decide, well, I, I can't do my job without violating your rights. Um, so, yeah, get rid of them. Yeah. Happy to see him go. I think there's something to be said about good cops who are fearful of being falsely accused of misconduct or being a racist or, you know, um, using force inappropriately. There's a disconnect between the way officers are trained to use force and what the legal standards say about when they can use force and what the public thinks about when they can use force. And it's bad news because we're often talking past one another. You wrote, I thought, a, an interesting post on your blog about how we could minimize, we could reduce shootings, we should, but it's really hard to imagine a world, at least as it exists now, where we could get shootings to zero in the United States, in a country awash with guns. And I think we're not doing a great job of managing the community's expectations That's right. about where that can go. But the tricky part, of course, is that with a thousand people being killed by policing gunfire incidents, we have to be realistic about how many we can probably work on. There's probably a couple of hundred that are in the lawful but awful. There's probably 50 to 100 that are just awful That's right. and probably not lawful. Mm -hmm. But if our goal is like 25 or 30, yeah, that's not happening. I agree. And it's sad. I mean, it, it, I would say every death is sad. Of you know, course. I don't, I don't, you know, the loss of a human life, it's always sad. Um, Absolutely. But nobody wants to be the guy to say, well, yeah, okay, 500 shootings a year is, is okay. Nobody's going to say that's acceptable. We'll right. give you a pass on that. Right. But if you could tell me that we could cut police shootings in half in three years, I'd say, tell me more. How do we do that? Right.
I mean, you can always push for more, but like that would be a huge improvement over the state of affairs right now. It's attractive to say we want to we want to live in a world where zero people are killed by the police. I want to live in that world too. Absolutely. I just don't think that that's realistic. Yes, but I think we have a failings in a few other systems before we get to the police. Exactly. The police may be what are called first responders, but they're often the last resort when every other system has failed. Yes, and I'll forget the exact words, right? But there's that Vollmer quote about how they've got to have the wisdom of Solomon and they've got to know all the laws and they've got to have the patience of, is it Job? A lot of biblical references, right? But yeah, I'm not really familiar with those. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I go into church, my skin blisters, so yeah. I have to run out the door. Um, and it was kind of repeated, you know, in so many words, uh, the, the new Tangled Up in Blue book. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. Rosa Brooks goes and becomes a reserve cop in D.C., which, by the way, aside, really interesting. I didn't know in D.C. reserve cops are basically cops. They just work part time. I mean, they have arrest authority. They yeah. do all the things that cops do, just not full time. But there's a passage in there where she's, you know, just talking about how incredibly unrealistic and unfair our expectations of police are. Maybe not unfair, but just it's an impossible job, I think, is what she settles on. The order that we've given them is impossible. I don't know any other profession that has a camera on them all the time. Over 30 years, they will make multiple decisions every single day of their workday, and we have an expectations of zero mistakes. And I don't know any profession that is capable of that. No. The medical profession kill far more people considering how many interactions they have in terms of medical errors. They don't have cameras on them. Absolute chaos that's the legal system. Judges don't have cameras on them. We have no idea what they're up to and probation and prosecutors. It's an amazing that we've decided to focus all of this scrutiny and effort on this one group. And some of it's merited because policing didn't get their house in order in the past. They've brought this upon themselves to some degree. Yeah. But some of it is also just so unrealistic in terms of those expectations. Right. So I'm sympathetic to that. I think, you know, we do live in a democracy and as gatekeepers of this system that's ripe with disparities and part of it contributed by policing. I think we should hold officers and agencies accountable for when they don't don't live up to expectations. But to our earlier point, we should have realistic expectations, right, so that yes. we can hold agencies accountable. I think body-worn cameras are here to stay, right? Surveillance yeah, cameras are, yeah. are becoming more and more common and society is, is awash in smartphones that can record anything. So this is the world we live in now and you know policing is going to have to rise to the occasion yeah and it's going to have to own some of the problems of the past but there's a, there are big issues in terms of just i think managing perceptions managing the community relations moving forward because we're going to keep having mistakes i've described it in the past these police shootings they're rare in the grand scheme of things but they also happen with sad and predictable regularity yeah, so they're simultaneously rare but they also happen three times a day. Mm -hmm. And they happen everywhere, big agencies, small agencies, cities, rural communities. So I hate to say this, but there'll be another George Floyd sometime, maybe not tomorrow, but within the next year, five years, it's gonna happen again. And um, But will we be better in five years? I mean, I think I always start my classes by asking if, has policing gotten better in the last 50 years? Right. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of variation in how students respond to that question. But I think on a lot of measurable things, They've improved. Yes. They shoot fewer people. They're better trained. Mm -hmm. They're more professional. But I don't know either. I mean, it's gotten really politically divisive. But the country's become divisive anyway. Yeah, the well, it's country's always been divisive, yes, right? But, but it's, it feels like it's got a lot worse, right? I've said in the past that I think social media will be the downfall of society. And I, I stand by that at some point. It's like, it was a mistake. 
it was a mistake to capture everyone's every waking thought and put it out for the world to see and get retweeted. And I can be an asshole on Twitter, so I'm probably contributing to that <laughs> in some way. <laughs> I think, you know, and it's, I've had to look in the mirror sometimes and say, what, do I need to say this? Probably yeah. not. I think we could all maybe do a little reflection. So congratulations on your award this year as the Young Experimental Criminologist from the Academy of Experimental Criminology and the American Society of Criminology's Division of Experimental Division Criminology. Of experimental Criminology. Well done. Congratulations. Thank you. You take an interesting approach to this experimental idea because you're starting to do some really innovative work around crowdsourcing surveys and opinions and things like that. How would you describe yourself as a scholar in that regard? You know, I check the headlines. I, I try to watch the news. Stay, you know, keep my sort of finger on the pulse of what's going on in policing and where I know that there's data capable of speaking on some of the conversations that are taking place in the absence of data. I'm always, as a curious person, I, I, when I say, well, I know where I could go get that answer, I, I, I'm inclined to go get it. Actually, just at the reception earlier, one of my colleagues was saying, well, what are you working on now? You seem like you've kind of jumped around. Or you've... And my answer was, like, I kind of go where the wind blows. I mean, I, isn't academia wonderful for that? It, it is, right? I get up and I say, you know, what's interesting today? And where could I help the discussion be a little more data informed? What piece of scholarship that led you to here is the part that you're most proud of? Or the, the piece that you, you wanted to highlight to somebody? Gosh, that's a really good question. As academics, we kind of fawn over the so-called top tier journals and, and we fawn over big publications where you're, you're shrugging as if, you know, you can say that, Jerry, the full professor, but I mean, that's our currency in this field, right? That's how you go get tenure and that's how you make a name for yourself is, is publishing in the, the so-called big journals. But I think what I'm most proud of is just trying to become more committed to open science, right? To getting my work out there so that, you know, because the, the whole point of this is to produce knowledge. Right. Right. And if we produce knowledge and then bury it behind a paywall, what are we really doing here? So I started trying to publish in journals that don't put up paywalls. And I think that what I'm most proud about is every time I work with an agency, if they're kind enough to give me access to their officers to do a survey, I'm going to be kind enough to put together a short report and tell them, you know, here's what I found and here's maybe what you could do with this. That is so important. It's one of the things I learned and, I, and not enough scholars do this. Chuck Ramsey was always complaining about this. Let me know what's happening. That's right. You know, give me some feedback and give it to me in a way I can understand it. And I've always tried after reports to write one or two page PDFs in English mm -hmm. with some simple charts and graphics and some simple statistics that they can just read and understand. Yes. And I'm not trying to say the cops are dumb, but they're just busy and they don't need to know guru level statistics to do their job. So we've got to give it to them in a way that they can understand. Yeah. And now they get something much more quickly than waiting two years for some journal article in some obscure journal that they can't access because, as you say, it's behind a paywall. And that they get bored reading anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I often get bored reading most academic research. Right, right. You know, yeah. You've been spending more time advertising. Sorry, I went, you've, well, that sounded very kind of a, 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 almost accusatory. You've been spending more time advertising and doing small Twitter threads, which are really handy on your research. Have you found that as a good way to reach out to people? I think it's a great way. I mean, I've, I've actually had opportunities present themselves from tweets that I've put out, right? So I recently published op-eds in both the Washington Post and in the City Journal. And these are audiences that I probably would have never reached with my article in whatever journal. But, you know, you do a short Twitter thread, you explain in layman's terms what this was, why you did it, what you found, what you can do with it. And, you know, it, it can gain traction that way. Um, Twitter's a weird thing, you know, sometimes... Oh, it's a cesspool of hate and misery. It is. It's, it's, there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of things to hate about Twitter. But for all of its uh, headaches, it can be a great way to promote... There are some wonderful moments on it. There are, yeah. And it's a great way to follow research, too. I mean, I learned it's a lot easier to keep up with what the field's doing and who's doing what on Twitter than it is, you know, by other methods that I've chosen. It's certainly been great as, you know, we're only just now getting back into conferences. 
it has been an incredible way to keep up with what's been going on. Mm-hmm. And I think academics, and you do a great job of this, have to reach out with their scholarship more and not just sit back and complain when people don't come and find their obscure journal articles. Science, including social science, is cool and it's for everyone. I've sat in on a few panels at this conference where I'm seeing some very brilliant work being done, but I don't know that it's gonna be communicated in a digestible way to people who could actually make it matter. Well, we don't train people how to do that. We don't. I can give my students, a, you know, can you write 20 pages on this with some obscure statistics? That'd be fine, no problem at all. Can you convert that into two pages that I can give the police commissioner that's in English that they can distribute? There is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, writing is hard, right? Brevity is really hard after we've had to write a dissertation. But you know, if you can't say what you did in a sentence, then maybe you don't know what you did. But to your point, yeah, we we don't train that. And I certainly get that. I think we have a moral obligation to get our work out there to the people who can use it. Well, I think especially if you're at universities that take any kind of public funding. Yes. Yeah. If you're in the art history department, I can't speak to that. Yeah. But if you're working in crime and you have knowledge that could help and improve crime policy, that could just stop one person getting their car stolen, or worse, you know, being the victim of violence, to not engage with that and not to consider that to be part of your job is, is I think, a flaw and a mistake. I agree. I mean, I understand it, but it's unfortunate. Yeah. And me personally, I, you know, if I have the time, I'll pick up the phone. I'll talk to the reporters. You know, if, if I find that a reporter goes and does a, a, a hack job with the story, I'll probably put that reporter on my do not respond list. Yes. Maybe we should all circulate that list. <laughs> we should. We should. That's a great idea. But, you know, there's a lot of good folks out there who are honestly in search of the truth. What I like about what you bring to the discussions, I follow you engaging with people on Twitter back and forwards. You know, you and there's a bunch of people who are good at this is to just keep bringing back to what the data and the science is, not let it deteriorate into... Well, I have a fucking opinion. Yeah. Yeah, this is what I think. Well, okay, well, let's test that. Here's what the data and the knowledge and the science say. And that's got to be fundamental to our role because otherwise we slip from being social scientists into advocates. Yeah. And the problem with people who are heavily engaged in advocacy is they're not willing to see the possibility of another side. Yeah, that's right. And I think when academics engage in that, they undermine the rest of us who are trying to say, well, look, this is what the data say. Whether you like it or not, it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson has said, you know, the great thing about science is it's true whether or not you believe it. Yes, I love that quote. And it's funny you mentioned that. I, I recently was accused in an email. Someone read that story that we wrote in the Washington Post and took issue with the denominator that we were using, right? He threw my disparity doesn't mean bias paper back at me. And he said, you know, here's what you said in that paper. What changed? And uh, I said, you know, I stand by what I wrote, but I've updated my beliefs. I mean, there's new work that's come out that's really challenged what I thought I knew and really made me think deeper about this issue. And that's okay. That's the whole point of science. Yes, indeed. You continue to learn and you update your beliefs. I was telling my students the other night, you know, as scientists, we have to be agnostic about what we find, right? It's okay to use the skill set that you have to advocate for justice and for reform where it's necessary. But like that line can get blurred very quickly. Yes. I think none of us would be in this field if we didn't support the value of reform. I don't think anybody sees that the criminal justice system is in any way, shape or form perfect. Yeah. But this change should be data driven. Well, I got to tell you, Jerry, I've seen arguments that, you know, we need to stop collecting data because of what it might show. I've had people straight up tell me, no, we don't need to track all police shootings if if the data are just going to get misused. To tell me we shouldn't track this behavior of police officers using deadly force is insane to me. And it's scary. Yes. You're an NIJ leads academic. Yes. You actually have the opportunity to work through the National Institute of Justice's program. And I can never remember what LEAD stands for, but it stands for a whole bunch of things. 
Law enforcement advancement through data and science or something like that. It's a little tortuous, but well done. You got there because it would take me a week to figure that out. <laughs> you actually had the opportunity to work much more closely with the police than I think a lot of people do. I see a lot of people just downloading data sets and then just writing stuff. But you're actually working with the police now. How's that going? It's a fantastic opportunity, even when the pandemic totally threw it off the rails. So we haven't really been able to take off the way we'd hope, but they just funded three more Leeds academics to start. And even in the middle of the pandemic, when we haven't been able to travel and get together the way we would have, it's just been great to be dialed into that network of 60 to 80 mid-career police officers who are some of the most passionate people I've met, who care about their communities. Oh, they're fantastic, who, aren't they? Who, want, who yeah. want genuinely to do better who recognize the problems in policing and who want to do better, you know, bless them. Some of them have gotten PhDs. Some of them have done RCTs uh, in their agencies. It's incredible. Does it change your perspective on policing at all? I don't think so. I mean, I was always, you know, even back in my grad school days, you know, I was embedded in an agency three days a week working with their crime analysis unit, right? So I knew these people were out there. But I, I do think it could be, you know, an eye-opening experience maybe for others who, who didn't go on that track, right? And, and you mentioned people just downloading data sets, you know, and maybe not understanding all of the complexities they're in. I'm, I'm talking economists. <laughs> <laughs> Um, your words, not mine. Some of them are getting a lot better, actually. I, I'll yeah. give them that. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I see it. It's clear sometimes that folks don't really understand what it is they're looking at. And every time I've worked with an agency, the custodians, the keepers of those data, they know them inside and out. Yes. And they can spot BS when they see it immediately. Yeah. People like John Hall from the NYPD. Oh, John's great. Yeah. He's embedded in his data and they put a lot of their data online. So, you know, stuff's getting published and talked about. And then you just get this one line on a tweet where John just points out, all the flaws in it. Yeah, John's Devast great. Devastating for that kind of work. Yeah. John's great. When something comes out about NYPD, I always pull up his timeline or shoot him a message. John, what do you think of this? Because yeah, he's one of those people who you, you can't get the BS past him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Leeds has been great, 60, 80 scholars. And that really does have so much potential because a lot of the scholars have been promoted to chief. They, they still have that same passion and drive, that commitment to doing research. Um, this really could be like an opportunity to make policing more evidence-based. And as a, an award-winning now, young experimental scholar, and I hate you for the youth, I, I envy it hugely, <laughs> but, bastard. But I, I think that's something that's lost on some people, which is if you're a young academic, start building relationships with agencies, even at the lower levels. In Philadelphia, when they had a hiring freeze for civilians and we started to train the first crime analyst by taking sworn officers, Matt Deacon was one of them. He's a captain in one of the busiest districts in the city now. Mm -hmm. Play the long game. Yeah. I was doing a survey at one point in grad school and uh, I went to the roll call meetings and handed out my survey and one of the officers in the room, you know, he raised his hand and he said, are we, are we ever going to get to see this? I said, what do you mean? He said, I've done so many surveys where I never get to see what you found. You know, you, yeah. you, you researchers come in here and you do your study and then you're gone. And, you know, I made a pledge to him. I, I'll, I will get you a brief, you know, and, and he was very appreciative of that. I mean, they, you know, they don't have to take our surveys. Yeah. They can just tell us to kick rocks. So, yeah, it's Always. so important to, yeah, exactly, to, to build those relationships and nurture them, right? Because, yeah, they could be chief one day and uh, they'll remember. Yes, they will. Yep. Yeah. What's disheartened you about how we use numbers, use or don't use data? You know, it, it was odd to me. And maybe, it should, maybe I'm naive, right? But when the FBI data came out in September, we all knew what it was going to show. We didn't know exactly, but we all knew there was going to be a big spike. And uh, we all had our theories, right? But just the rush to downplay 5,000 additional murder victims, disproportionately black murder victims. Yeah. Thousands of families affected, you know, lost loved ones. That's more than a 9-11. 
And look how much of an impact that had on the country. Yeah, a truly historic one-year spike. Yes, we're still lower than we were in 1990, but why is the worst year on record the benchmark? Going back to the benchmark issue, right? Why can't we compare it to the best year on record? So yeah, and we'll argue for the next 20 years over what happened in, in 2020. But I think we can all agree that, you know, less murder would be a, a good thing. And so it struck me as so odd that if you talked about it, you were fear-mongering. The politicization, and considering we've had a couple of drinks in the bar, I'm quite proud of having got that word out, and I'm not <laughs> going to try it again, of data. Yeah. I mean, it's possibly always there, but it, yeah, it definitely feels worse. Sometimes I wonder, are we prisoners of the moment? Maybe it's always been this way, but it's certainly more uh, visible, I guess, right, with social media. You know, I, I didn't used to know what Sean in Bozeman, Montana thought about policing and my research, right? But but now I do, because he's tweeting at me. With his seven followers, but lots yeah. of opinions. Well, did you see that Pew study? Just recently, 23% of adults even have a Twitter and like 25% of those users are producing 97% of the content. It's a lot of echo chambers. It is. So that was a good reminder for me. Like, this is not reflective of everyone. This is just Twitter. And I think you see that when you see Gallup polls that contradict the zeitgeist and the, the, the kind of sense of where you think, well, Twitter's going, obviously, this is where it is. And then you kind of go, nope, and we have this national poll. And there again, we're at one poll. You know, I'd understand people who rush to say, well, it was a poorly worded question or it was loaded. And if they'd asked it this way, they would have gotten a different, you know, but when it's dozens of polls with different question wordings, different samples, when they all converge on this consistent theme, at some point, what are you talking about? Are you saying that the people taking the poll don't know what they want? Because that's what it comes off as. Yes. And, and that's that's a bad look. It's indicative of not enough education in social science and a little bit too much push for advocacy. The data contradict my position, and it should be, I may have to change my position. But what it really means is I'm going to double down on my position and then try and undermine the data. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. That's probably a good place to stop. <laughs> Congratulations on your award. Thanks. Thoroughly well-deserved. Yeah, well, get back to work. We're looking to read what you're up to next. Thanks so much, Jerry, and thanks for having me. This is, a, this is an honor. <laughs> Please. <laughs> that was episode 42 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Chicago, November 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. Instructors can also DM me for a spreadsheet of multiple choice questions for every Reducing Crime episode. And as always, you can find a transcript of this and every episode at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Be safe and best of luck. Mm -hmm.